This is a HeadGum Podcast. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We watch Left Behind, parentheses 2014, and we're going to talk about it today on Good Christian Fun. I want to see cats! I about another joke when I... I think we've had enough of your jokes. What do you get? I don't think when so. When you cross a mentally ill owner with a That's society it. that abandons him and treats him like riot, I'll tell you what you get. You get what you can deserve. What is, it's so long. I can't well, hear it. I don't know what's going on. Oh, well, welcome to Good Christian Fun anyway. I'm Kevin. <laughs> I'm Caroline. And we're here to have Good Christian Fun. That was just for Caroline, and now it's for no one. <laughs> <laughs> Good Christian Fun is the podcast where we talk about Christian pop culture, Christian movies, music, and entertainment made for and made by a love letter from Christians to Christians. And we love to love those love letters on the GCF podcast. In these uncertain times, we're certain that we love Christian rock and Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) But we're not here to make fun of you or to go to church or to make smoothies as some people are, I think, in the background. I know, I figured you could cut my mic (laughs) Uh, that section. I I was like, Griffin, I think there's like a chainsaw guy outside your door. Something. (laughs) You're going to get murdered. New York's wilding out out right now. But uh, (laughs) no, we're just here to have good Christian fun. And listen, it's not often that we get to revisit a piece of content. Artists at different points in their life, sure, but a whole second adaptation of a classic work, what a treat and what a privilege for us to do. I agree. I think that is a treat and a privilege, and I'm, uh, I think that was my turn. <laughs> okay, <laughs> terrific. <laughs> Well, I think after this like kind of firecracker chemistry that could only happen on Zoom, it's time to introduce our special guest. Oh, friends and folks, we're very excited about this one. You may know him from his Blank Check podcast or The Tick or, of course, Draft Day. Everybody give it the hell up for Griffin (laughs) Newman! Oh, my God. Thank you, thank you. Happy belated draft day, everyone. Happy belated draft day to us all. Sadly, draft day was a little bit different this year, but we still were able to have it. Much like Easter, it was a holiday very much affected by the coronavirus, (laughs) probably in a way the second most important holiday of the year. It was my religion. Uh, Yeah, no, I love uh, the actual day draft day uh, so deeply and know uh, so much about it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, yeah, you went full method with that movie, right? 
I will say almost everything I shot in the movie made it into the final cut. I was very lucky that way because a lot of times if you have like a supporting role, you're like a comic relief character. You're like, I don't know how much of this they're going to use. Almost everything I did made it into the movie. The only scene that I remember shooting that was cut out is the one where I had to myself recite football statistics. (laughs) And I don't think... That's a coincidence. I think that was the one scene that just could not be salvaged. They should cover that in acting school, like a whole semester, like convincing people you know about sports. Well, I was like very stressed out doing it. And then I like read the script and I was like, okay, I think I'm like pretty much in the clear here. Like I mostly just talk about who's on the phone and like get coffee and things like that. Like, I play the general manager's assistant, so I don't have to, like, be making the football decisions. (laughs) The most I had to do was, like, react as if I knew what was being said adjacent to me in my general vicinity. "Mm, This this scene isn't selling it. Well, that one scene I had to, like, list off some stats as if I knew what I was talking about. And I, I couldn't I couldn't do it. I just could not do it. It was harder than like I could do sci fi. I could like list off any bullshit <laughs> sure. technology, alien races. But this was just like I cannot make sense of this. That's like when podcasters have to do mid roll ads for like a financial company. And we all say ETFS instead of ETFs. Yes. <laughs> right. I did that once. There was a scene on the tick where I said Sepira. When I think it was supposed to be SEP IRA. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm learning tonight also what that yeah. is. No, I didn't know. And my character on that was supposed to be an accountant. And I just was like, please, let's Sep not. Ira. Don't give me accountant talk. Let's just, I'll be in the office. I'll look at paperwork seriously. Don't make me say the things. Yep. I won't do it convincingly. By the way, happy elongated tax season to you both. I've been meaning to oh, wish that to thank you. you. And, thank uh, you. Yeah. It's my favorite time of the year. It's the most wonderful that time. cozy feeling. Yeah. Yes, exactly. We realize how screwed we actually are. Um <laughs> Griffin, thank you so much for joining us on the show, buddy. Oh, such a pleasure. From the now opposite I, there, coast. There's a question I want to ask you right before we started recording, and I decided to hold it so we could get it on mic. Yeah. Um, so, A, you're new to remote records. You don't have a lot of, uh, uh, I was going to say transatlantic, but that's not right. <laughs> but but Transcontinental? Across, <laughs> tra- across the coast, guess. Sure. You're, you're right. You're usually doing these in person. Um but but the other thing I want to know is uh, what percentage of your guests so far would you say are Jewish? How many Jewish guests have you Ooh, had on? So probably far? six or seven. We could count. Okay. Them. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, and and yeah, even a few of those I think even practiced growing up officially. Because mm-hmm. well, it was there's Tybee Diskin, there's Gabby Dunn. There were, we've had Guy we've Brandon. had at least a handful. Yeah. Yeah. Gabby yeah. Dunn, a great Jew. Yeah. Um, oh, one of the top Jews for <laughs> sure. One Jew. of the top Jews. Uh-huh. <laughs> the power rankings, the the newsletters that our moms yes. send. Sure. Now, how does it feel for you around. as a Jew coming on to a show called Good Christian Fun? Well, look, I I. I, I <laughs> Kevin, we've recently gotten to know each other IRL uh, after after being uh, friendly and and family uh, on uh, social media. Very so, friendly. I felt comfortable knowing that Kevin was asking me and trusting that he wouldn't be putting me into a hostile okay. environment. Got it. You know, I felt like I was probably safe from any sort of uh, uh, forced conversion effort. It didn't seem like that was this kind of show. Uh, yeah, well, we not don't yet. tell people about that. Not yet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, no, it didn't give me any pause. Didn't give me any pause. And I, I am sort of curious about it. And it is like, I I think about 
my own history with religion pretty infrequently. So it seemed like an interesting opportunity to like sort of dig into my mind and reassess my relationship to, to Judaism throughout my life and and Christianity. But yeah. uh, Well, hopefully oh, by only, the end of this yeah. show, we'll get you to shake that Judaism off and yeah. step into something new. Oh, I, I got to dr- I got to drop that shit. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. Especially time. in times like these. I mean, in uncertain you know. times, it's good yeah. to d- ditch something. Yeah. Wait, so Kevin, did you? Yeah. Did you? Sorry, did you and Griffin meet on your East Coast tour? Yeah. 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 Just did your coronavirus trailblazing. My last hurrah in New York City, March (laughs) six. I think we recorded something like that. Oh, okay. Okay. No, it was. It was like that. Like it it was the week before everything went into lockdown. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. And you got back home just in time. I got back home on like the twelfth or something. It was insane. Yeah. yeah. One could say that you avoided being left behind hey and one could say i was a potential carrier to all my friends because <laughs> also because the, the first the first case was reported he comes waltzing into my apartment like kramer <laughs> <laughs> touching everything sneezing coughing licking yeah well we love to cat. lick each other i mean you you may not know this griffin on the west coast we have started to lick each other kind of as a custom greeting yeah. Can't do it now so in this space. culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you said we, I didn't think you meant West Coast. I meant I thought you meant we at Good Christian Fun. <laughs> I thought you were saying like that's one of the hallmarks of our podcast. No, GCF has do. a strict no lick policy, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, strict no lick. It's a strict no licker. Okay. It's a strict no, no lick? touch. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's uh, bottom when, of the love languages. You, because you were about to throw out the stat, when was the first New York case reported? It was it was it was March third or something like that. Okay, it was yeah. like it was like one of the first seven days in March. But I feel like at the time, like we were recording when we hung out, um, we were sort of talking about like this thing's weird, huh? Like, is it is this going to be a thing? I know. Like, it very much felt to me like every time there has been any sort of storm warning in New York. Or the times like uh, uh, SARS and swine flu and bird flu and all that sort of stuff where it was just sort of like, well, let's all like be mindful, but it doesn't seem like it's an immediate problem yet. And every time there's been a storm where they're like stay indoors, stock up on food, it never ends up being that much of a threat to the majority of New York City. This Not to say that uh, no one is affected by it, but it's one of those things of like, let's overcorrect, let's overcompensate, keep the people who need to be safe, safe, and uh, err on the side of caution. And this is just like a totally unprecedented uh, thing. Yeah, and time makes fools of us all in a way. Yeah. And it is one of those yeah. things where, I and I encourage the listener to do this too, like remember the first time you just heard a coronavirus and then remember yeah. your conversations before lockdown. And all of them totally. are like those lines that you hear in like dramas taking place in a historical time where they're yeah. like, Who's that painter? He's never going to make it. Pablo yeah. Picasso. Oh. The Germans sure seem angry. Yeah, exactly. It feels like that. So we're all fools. But speaking of fools, Griffin, speaking how, of fools. How, how did you grow up with religion? What was it like for you? <laughs> oh. uh, well, so my father, fully Jewish. Polish, Jewish, like second generation on one hand. Mm-hmm. Third generation. I guess his parents were... The, the first generation to grow up in the States. I don't know whether they immigrated right after they were born or right before they were born, but... Uh, so he was third generation, uh, P- a Polish mother, uh, Hungarian father. So that sort of vibe of Eastern European Jew. I 
grew up thinking for a long time that I was uh, half Christian, half Jewish, uh, hmm. because my mother's uh, mother was a is she's still alive uh but you'll understand why i'm using the past tense in a second uh born a uh polish uh third generation uh jew in brooklyn very quickly as as fast as she could uh remade herself as sort of an ultimate european socialite uh married multiple uh european men in the arts wow uh, and got her uh, extended passport and changed her name several times and really sort of tried to rebrand herself uh, <laughs> an original she, influencer yes uh she would i mean I, I don't know that she ever like flatly denied her heritage and certainly now that she is a little bit older though i will not name her actual age I think she's come to sort of appreciate her background a little bit more while not being a religious person at all. But she very much wanted to be a sort of... Uh, she married a very waspy British man and then followed by a, a slightly less waspy Frenchman and uh, lived in, in England and France for, for a good number of uh, years in her life. And my mother was raised in Europe without a very religious background in that sort of way. So I'm I'm three quarters, but it was like my mother's side was pretty agnostic to say the least. And if anything, she was raised maybe culturally a tiny, tiny bit uh, Catholic, but I don't think seriously observing in any sort of way. My paternal grandparents were religious, but it felt in a way that was much more tied to tradition, as I think a lot of uh, Jews and especially like kind of old world Jews are. Very often you don't have uh, families following, you know, to the letter of the book because they believe it's the code for how they need to live. And it's more just this is the way we are tied to our ancestors. Mm -hmm. um, I think especially, you know, when you're dealing with generations that were right hovering around a little thing called the Holocaust, where there was like such a, a push to make sure that we held on to what we had for those who survived and, uh, you know, uh, had kids uh, after them. We would do the sort of religious celebration of all the major Jewish holidays. I was wildly disinterested, didn't care, <laughs> disliked rules, disliked anything that was formal, you know, didn't like the sort of uh, constraints of it. I probably have to dress up a little bit nicer. I just stay quiet. I can't watch TV. I have to sit at the table with the adults for the whole time. I mean, just everything about it was like. It was like not punk rock. Yeah, yeah, I was just like such a punk rock kid, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I can um, tell. Yeah, and like in a certain way, like Adonai is the ultimate narc. <laughs> um, Thank you for saying that. Yeah, no, I had to say. No, but it just, it was all really kind of like boring and stodgy and uninteresting to me. And I was, I pushed very hard and my family did to a certain extent to celebrate most of the major Christian holidays because they seemed fun and shiny. Yeah. Uh, because they had, uh, you know, figures like the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus and like, uh, you know, fun activities. Yeah, things like that. Uh, it was like DC them. versus Marvel. It's like DC had Batman totally. and Superman. And, you know, right. you guys had, you know, whoever the equivalent of Thor was <laughs> for, the, sure. for the culture. 
But also the Jewish holidays are all really rooted in suffering. They mm-hmm. don't have that element of escapism to them, whereas I think Christian holidays have that balance of like, here's the fun stuff for the kids, and then pss, pss, this is what it's really about. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like a spoonful of sugar thing, um, which I was very responsive to as a kid. And Judaism doesn't have any of that fanciness. And even like Hanukkah, where it's like, you know, a marketing exercise to essentially make Hanukkah a rival to Christmas because it is not a major holiday. It's just the one that is closest to Christmas in the calendar year. So it became yeah. the gift day. And mm-hmm. they came up with this marketing hook of, oh, it's eight eight crazy nights. You get eight presents. Look at that. That's more impressive than the Christian kids. Genius. But it, it never really shakes out that way. And also, <laughs> when you're going through the ritual of it, it's not like there's a magical, jolly fat man who like slides down your chimney and has reindeer and eats milk and cookies. It's like, we were stuck in like a cave and we didn't have enough oil to light the candles. (laughs) You know, it's just like, it's so like boring and and sort of like heavy and everything that as a kid, I just think I was like, I I don't like anything they're selling. So we would like celebrate Hanukkah in terms of lighting the candles and reciting the things and same with Passover and all of that. But we were definitely like a Christmas household, a completely, uh, you know, a a religious uh, Christmas but the tradition of it and believing in Santa Claus and all of that and like uh, Easter to a much lesser degree. Uh, and I was just sort of out. And then when I was maybe 11 or 12 at the time that I guess most kids uh, who are raised in Judaism would start preparing for a bar bar mitzvah, you know, 11 or 12. Um, my parents did that big push of like, you should do this. I was the oldest of three kids. And so I was like the guinea pig for everything of like, I, I guess we want our kids to be bar mitzvah. Mm-hmm. And I just was so radically uh, uninterested. And and even the sell of like, this is like the big one where everyone comes and they give you checks and you get to have a big party and you make a bunch of money, like all this sort of shit. I just was like, I don't care about any of this. I refuse to do it. So I, I just, yeah. like, didn't get bar mitzvah, even though they were, like, you you know, they were sort of not saying, like, you you only have to pretend that you believe in any of it. You don't really have to. <laughs> he like, turned down the bar overt. mitzvah money. Wow. <laughs> but but I they just, were like, you could get Fs, you know, and just, like, we'll give you the degree. <laughs> right, right. And I just was, like, I don't know, like, this waste of energy, and I just don't care about any of this. Like, I, I just, there was this nihilistic part of me that was, like, I would feel like an even bigger phony, like, getting up there and reciting some Torah portion. So I didn't do it, but I had like a year where they sent me to like a a Judaism tutor. I mean, I'd say maybe six months where I was in like Hebrew studies with other kids my age and then six months where I worked with an individual tutor. And those were the two attempts for my parents to get me in any way invested. And then they finally just went like, I guess no. And it wasn't even a discussion with my siblings. I mean, it was just a thing where like never came up with my younger siblings. Was any of that affected by like who your friends were and like what they were into, you think? I don't know, because I grew up in New York City and I grew up in New York City as like, a you know, a white, fairly privileged man going to private schools. I didn't grow up as a man, as a boy, but going to private (laughs) schools, you know, in Manhattan where like, I I thought for a good chunk of my life that 50% of the American population was Jewish. You know, I was just like, well... (laughs) 
like what I yeah. see immediately around me, it's like 50-50. Like half the kids are Jewish and half the kids are Christian. The other things aren't even on my radar. Right. Like, it was like, <laughs> you know, in the way that I think a lot of Christian people in America grow up and they're like, I've never like met a Jew or I've met one or tw- oh, two. Totally. I haven't. Yeah. And then as I grew up, most of my friends or at least, you know, like half of them got bar mitzvahed. Or bat mitzvah. I mean, I just like for, for two or three years, that was like most of my social life in middle school was going to those parties. You just shouted so, from the back, poser. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was one of those things where it was like, it wasn't like I wasn't doing it because I was embarrassed about being Jewish. Although, and I think we can discuss this more, the older I get, the more I think I was. But I wasn't embarrassed because of any immediate sense of being an outsider from my social sphere. You know, I think it was more larger cultural stuff of just how little representation it felt like there was of Judaism in the monoculture. I just couldn't be bothered. I don't want to make it sound like it was some integrity thing, but I just like, I I think it was like an early onslaught of the kind of like, this is all bullshit. Like if you look at it, like the world is full of crap. Like it was my version of the Fiona Apple VMA speech. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. This is all fake. You're phonies. <laughs> right. Golden it was just like, yeah. I think it timed out with me starting to have that feeling about everything around me mm-hmm. creeping into it. And so it just felt like this was my stand of like, I don't want to be a phony. I'm not going to get up there and recite a Torah portion I don't care about, even though I was not judging anyone else for doing it, and even though I was greatly enjoying the parties I was getting to go to because of them. So do you feel like the arc of your relationship with Jewishness, do you feel like any restoration of it after seeing more examples of it in media or like movies like A Serious Man or even something like that? Totally, totally. And I think like starting to understand the connection between like culturally between Judaism and so much of American comedy, you know, I mean, even just from the roots of it so often coming from like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Borscht Belt and vaudeville and the Yiddish theater. And Mrs. All these Maisel. Yes. Mrs. Maisel, <laughs> one of the originals. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Freaking trailblazer. But no, but even to that extent that like, you know, modern standup as we know it was largely dominated by uh, Jewish voices. And even if they were sort of smoothed out a little bit when they got to TV, it still was there was something identifiably Jewish about them. I think it took me a while to be able to differentiate that from the New Yorker stuff that I felt more of a connection with, you know? I think when I would see that stuff and connect to it culturally, I would go, well, that's the New York in me. Because that's a whole other thing that I wasn't reconciling how much of the New York cultural identity, not not overwhelmingly, but a good chunk of it is defined by, uh, you know, Jewish immigrants. So I, I think all of that has been sort of a journey for me. I'm still like, you know, a pretty wildly agnostic person when it comes to actual spirituality. But I've become a little more interested in Judaism in the same sort of cultural way that I feel like you know my older relatives were my grandparents uh it was like like a lot of jewish immigrants in america it was like uh several families all immigrated together and all settled very close to each other and raised their kids together as sort of cousin families so it was like my father grew up like that and his parents grew up like that or his mother at least where he was very close with his cousins who lived next door. They all sort of bought the same plot of land when they moved here wow. and like, you know, started businesses together and have all these weird ties still. The other sort of dominant patriarch and matriarch of that sort of 
circle of cousin families were openly uh, atheist, mm-hmm. uh, Jewish atheists. Wow. Okay. So that kind of gave you permission, maybe. I didn't even realize that until many, many years later. Oh, But it was like everyone in our sort of family rung who lived on the East Coast in the tri-state area and practiced Judaism would come to our, um, you know, uh, uh, holiday celebrations, my grandparents' holiday celebrations. And then the rest of the family was abstaining. And like, funny enough, in that family where they were raised atheist, you know, where the parents were like, we don't believe in this. We're not going to teach you any of this. We're not going to make this part of your life at all. Uh, their rebellious son rebelled against them by moving to Israel and uh, marrying an Israeli woman and having Israeli children and and like completely doubling down on all of it. So I do think so much of it is like for the the wiring of a certain type of kid, if you hit an age where you're going to rebel against everything, religion is the ultimate thing to kind of rebel against, you know? Not the ultimate, but on that tier of just like, these are the biggest institutions that I can yeah. reject. Well, it's the most tangible um, example of authority when you're a kid. Right. It's the, it's Whereas, the ultimate authority, right? Whereas if your parents raise you and their authority is God doesn't exist, you rebel against them by being like, fuck you, I'm moving to the motherland. Yeah. I believe that God does <laughs> totally. exist. You know, it does speak to like, I see a lot of kinship between me and that relative. Yeah. I mean, did you ever believe in God at any point, even if it wasn't particularly within the Jewish faith or a higher power? Oh, yeah. I used to I used to hardcore believe in God and heaven and all of that. And I'd say I, I've only sort of like really shifted a lot of those opinions within the last maybe eight or nine years. And even so, a lot of that shifting was just moving towards more and more abstract ways of thinking about everything. I don't totally know where I lie now, but I think as a child, I believed in God. I believed in heaven. I believed in afterlife. I believed in all these things, but I mostly believed in them in the like cartoon watered down version of the the principles of Christianity. Yeah. I mean, do you uh, like, why do you think you find yourself drawn to it now? Do you think it's just like I'm older and I don't think it's like, I don't have. I don't need to rebel against it anymore, and so I actually have been kind of interested in it. Or yeah, is it like do you I, think I it think would be helpful? I, I think it's right. I don't feel threatened by it anymore. I felt threatened by it at a young age because it felt like a a thing that my parents could force me to do. You yeah, know? like it was involuntary a little bit when you're a kid. Like everything kind of right. feels involuntary. A little right. Bit. I mean, it felt to me so similar, I think, to doing like Little League baseball, which I just hated. You know, I was such an unathletic kid and I was forced to do that for so many years because I was a boy. So it was one of those things that was just sort of pushed on me of like, oh, well, you should do this. And it was it's so itchy to me. I think any form of religion was the same way. And so I would run to things like this sort of, um, you know, very simplified Christian interpretation of afterlife or God or the only the ceremonial elements of Christian holidays or things like that, because that felt like entertainment. That didn't feel like it was someone oppressing me by telling me this is the thing you need to do, you know? It was voluntary, and it also felt like I'm only seeing the fun level of these things. I'm not dealing with repent. I'm not dealing with Jesus as a figure, you know? That is all so abstract to me. Um, I, I was just sort of getting the, the, the whipped cream 
of Christianity. Yeah, like Left yeah. Behind or Veggie Tales. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> left Behind. The whipped cream of Christianity is a phrase we've yet to say on the show, but now we I have. just came up with it. I'm pretty proud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, cream rises to the top. You know what yeah, else rose? Well. Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's <laughs> yeah. how that it's works. It's funny yeah. to uh, hear yeah. you talk about like the way you talk about Christianity is probably how I kind of feel about Judaism right now. Like weird. It actually sounds pretty great. Like yeah. I know they're all really close, and there's like this ancientness to it, and, and they like, want you to be sad. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Like that's the thing. That's all the stuff. I mean, to answer your question, I think that. That's the stuff I respond to now, even if I am not really interested in, like, studying the Torah and living by it, you know? Right. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten more and more into religion, A, just, you know, in the abstract, like, interested in sort of looking at religion and studying it in a very, very passive way as both, like, an interesting way to chart traditions and communities, you know? and patterns of behavior and all of that, but also just all these different interpretations of essentially what's the way to be a good person? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. every religion is at the end of the day rooted in like, here are some good guidelines for how to just be a good person. Yeah, and why do you die? Right, right. (laughs) Like answering those two questions, like how do you live and and what happens when we die, you know, is like the crux of all religion. But that's always really interesting to look at, to sort of just like break apart. Like, what is the central message that this is trying to convey away from all the other trappings? Mm -hmm. And in that sense, as someone who is, talk about being culturally Jewish, uh, very anxious and constantly riddled with guilt, I do, as an adult, spend a lot of my time looking back at my life, thinking over everything, what I would have done differently, trying to learn lessons from it. You know, Mm -hmm. and uh, Judaism is so much of that, I feel like, you know, most uh, religious fables are about some sort of lesson being taught. But I feel like in Judaism, the the people really take their L's, you know, they like they wipe out hard. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yeah. You know, and in a way that's just kind of sad. I mean, as you said, a lot of times it just boils down to someone just like having to sit alone with the misery of what has happened to Mm -hmm. them. Yeah. Yeah. Which sounds relatable to you. (laughs) It's just like replaying moments in your head over and over again and feeling bad about them. (laughs) But that's all the stuff that I go like how much, you know, I think for a lot of my life I didn't want to be Jewish because it felt uncool to me, Mm. A, as like the less popular thing, you know? And B, that I didn't want to be defined by a thing I didn't believe in. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't like that people could make assumptions about me being Jewish when that was something I did not choose that I put no stock into. Yeah. And that always kind of really rubbed me the wrong way. But then I look at, like, you know, present day, how much deli I eat, how much behaviorally I feel like, you know, even talking about anxiety and guilt and all this sort of stuff. Uh, you know, even just I think like my my sensibilities in comedy are very, very defined by the the Jewish sensibility. So I'm just constantly reckoning with all of that. Like, you know, what is that that gets transferred? Yeah, ge- generationally, like, yeah. Right, right. As a kid, I was just sort of like, I don't like being categorized in this way because 
what does that mean? I don't read this book. It doesn't inform my personality at all. How can everyone who was raised this way be the same? In the same way that I would, like, get angry when I heard people, like, Italian people make statements like, you know, Italian people were very passionate. We love talking with our hands. And I would just always bristle and be like, that can't apply to everybody. That's not true. <laughs> people grew up in different circumstances. Yeah. Like, that's what are you talking about? There's no <laughs> unifying thing there. Like, we're unified by, like, what street we live on or where we eat lunch, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, of course, those things end up being intertwined. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, I only, you know, born and raised in New York only because that's where my family's settled a couple generations back yeah. and you know the amount of jewish immigrants settling in the tri-state area caused that area to be very defined by a jewish sensibility so that the you know the sense of a new yorker you know uh is is kind of inextricably tied to a certain strain of cultural judaism um i just i've stopped fighting against that stuff and i've recognized how much of it is there and then you start to question like well, how much of that did I get from my parents or my grandparents? Or is it just kind of in my DNA? Or is it the surroundings of being around other people who are Jewish or, or what? Yeah. yeah, that's what's so interesting about the dance of Judaism because there is like as much cultural as it is theological. Like, because people yeah. aren't, there's so much less examples of cultural Christianity in your adulthood other than yes. like, yeah, you get you might go to Easter when you're home with your folks, but otherwise, like cultural Christianity right. does really manifest itself in all the um, variants of ways that it can with uh, cultural Judaism in adulthood. Well, and also you have the different like sects of Christian Christianity that have their own sort of stereotypes associated with them, whereas in Judaism, and some will correct me and say that I'm being way too uh, glib about this. But, but to be reductive, it feels like it is mostly just uh, a, a scale of intensity, you know? Hmm. Right. In, in a lot of ways, it's just like, how religious are you, you know? And what are the personality traits that, that heighten or lower based on that? Because like in New York, you have a lot of uh, you know, Hasidic Jews and Orthodox Jews, you know, along with Reformed Jews and Passive Jews and all these things. And I see a, a real commonality between all of it, at least just speaking from my perspective in New York City, right? Mm -hmm. Seeing the rainbow of Judaism and intensity there. I see a real connective tissue, even if there are a lot of fundamental differences between me and someone who is a, a Hasidim. Mm -hmm. But I feel like and I don't get this as much because I didn't live around so much of this. But when people talk about the differences between like uh, Greek Orthodox and Baptist and Catholic and Reformed and all this sort of stuff, it feels like it's much smaller slivers with much more sort of specific cultural attributes. But then they're all tied into this thing that for better or worse is essentially the monoculture. It's like there's no need to have to fight to make sure those uh, traditions are upheld in the same way because they are sort of the default. I mean, I think that's how I felt as a kid and why I was jealous of the kids who went to church, you know, in a way. It was like, even though, of course, I don't want to go to church, that's the exact same thing I'm rebelling against here. It was, but that's the, that's the normal thing to do. Like, everyone else knows these stories. 
And if I got any rise out of anything going to like Hebrew school or whatever, it would be when a story would come up from the Old Testament and I would recognize, oh, this is something from the Bible too. Like this is something that I can relate to Christian kids on. Mm -hmm. Mm, It's beneficial for me to know about Jonah and the whale or Noah's Ark. Yeah, Yeah, like it was the part of your religion that didn't make you feel like super other or... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like a struggle. That's lovely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break. Thanks for sharing all that, Griffin. That was yeah, really it's fascinating. Nice about your experience. Th- things that I have almost never verbalized in my life. Perfect. Wow. That's what we that's get a lot of this show, and that's what yeah. we want. <laughs> well, Strange, let, right? Let's take a break, and we'll be right back with more Good Christian Fun. This HeadGum Podcast is brought to you by AuraFrames. That is right. Uh, from grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, even the friends of your life, every mom loves an AuraFrame. Holy shit, even aunts? Yes, especially aunts. Oh, wow. Because it was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. I mean, these AuraFrames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. I believe it. You have an AuraFrame, don't you? Yes, I actually more than believe it. I know it. Uh, I've got one for my mom, my mother-in-law, my grandmother-in-law. And dare I say your aunt? And dare you say my aunt and my aunt-in-law. Everyone's got one. Everyone loves them. I mean, Mother's Day is right around the corner, and there's no better gift than a digital photo frame. You give them the frame. It's got preloaded pictures in there. And you know what? You can update it with an app. So every time you take a new picture of a sweet little uh, person or place or thing in your life, it gets automatically sent to that frame. Exactly. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. Holy smokes. Excellent deal. Yeah, that's A-U-R-A Frames.com. You use the code HEADGUM at checkout to save. HEADGUM. Nice. Yes. Headgum. It's easy to set up. It's loved by everybody, including Oprah, including your aunt. Mm-hmm. So do check them out. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code HEADGUM at checkout to save. Damn right. And terms and conditions apply, of course. Of course. Thanks again to Aura. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to Good Christian Fun. It's time to dive into the topic. Come on, let's go. Now, we... um. Did cover Left Behind a couple years ago, the original Left Behind movie with Kirk Cameron mm-hmm. from 2001. We covered that with uh, a friend of blank check, Emily Vanderworth. All oh, the, the great Emily Vanderworth. Yeah, yeah. All, all the way back then. Griffin, I am curious what your impression is of just Christian media or Christian pop culture that you formed in, in your life. I'm, I'm sure you've seen some sort of Christian movie before, right? I have, yeah. I mean, I do. I think it's... Um... You know what? This is, in a way, this is the question I should have been most prepared to answer, and I'm caught totally <laughs> off guard. Okay. No, no, don't I'm worry. I'm trying to think. I've always viewed it as the the sort of preaching to the choir thing that I've never totally understood in art and entertainment. Mm-hmm. Of like, 
I want to just watch or listen to things that I already fundamentally agree with that do not challenge anything I knew when I started watching this, you know, not just in terms of like you want to watch different viewpoints, but also just like you want new information, you want different perspectives. Um, and I feel yeah, and like these are all like reinforcement. <laughs> right, right. Like yeah. so much of Christian media is reinforcement. I mean, I even remember as a, a kid when I would like uh, click through uh, channels and end up on sort of channels with uh, like Christian children's entertainment. I mean, even like pre Veggie Tale stuff. But there was always that feeling of like, there's something kind of different about this cartoon show and I can't tell what it is, <laughs> you know? And it was just that sort of air of like, li listen very closely. Right. Like, whether or not I would get to the point where they invoked Christ, there was always just that vibe of just like, well, you know why you're here, right? Yeah. We're all on the same page here. Do you also, uh, from the Christian movies, get the like culture war vibe too of like, oh, they made Absolutely. this to kind of fight back against yes. too many non-Christian movies? Right, which is, it's such an odd thing because it's like, well, I mean, I think that's what makes this movie really interesting to me. Because in a certain way, I feel like from a business standpoint, this is what Christian movies should be trying to do cynically yeah yeah, right. yeah yeah i agree with you so like right. and to be clear when we were talking about the for the listener huh when griff and i were talking about this and griff said oh maybe left behind and like just it's interesting to interrogate the idea of remaking a christian movie and then like the differences yeah. between those two did you watch both movies fully i watched both i pu oh I, I pushed back the record a couple times because i wanted to make sure i got both finished but i watched both <laughs> Oh my back gosh! To back. And that's when you when you messaged me. It was the thing that came to mind the first. Uh, a because I'm a big Nicolas Cage fan. Nicolas Cage is one of those guys where it has bugged me to see the degree to which he's kind of become memeified in a way that robs him of his agency. Because I think very often when Nicolas Cage is ridiculous, he is very aware that he's ridiculous yeah. yeah like there's there's a strain of online Nicolas cage response that is like oh my god have you seen bad lieutenant that movie is so bad he doesn't know how silly he's being and i'm like Nicolas cage knows exactly what he's doing in bad lieutenant you can like it or not but that movie is a completely successful execution of the batshit crazy ideas that Werner Herzog and Nicolas Cage had. Yeah, it almost feels like a different strain of like the Keanu discourse up until recently totally. of like Keanu's so bad and he doesn't even know blah, 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 blah. And then right. everyone's like actually locks into what he's probably doing in all those movies. Right, yeah. which is a much longer conversation that I don't even want to open the box on, but it, <laughs> the idea of a very narrow-minded view of what constitutes good acting. And it often veers towards a, a kind of boring strain of naturalism. Whereas I think Keanu and Nick Cage are both very stylized actors in ways that I like. Doesn't always work. Both of those guys have certainly had their face plants in the past. There are certain things they fundamentally cannot do, ways you cannot cast them. But I think for a good chunk of Nicolas Cage's career, most of his films were either he is actually doing a very good job as a dramatic or comedic actor, right? Something like Leaving Las Vegas or Adaptation Raising or... Arizona, things like that. Right. Yeah. Any of these examples where, like, e either as a comedic actor or a dramatic actor, he is clearly doing a great job. No one can dispute that. He is in 
in lockstep with the movie, with his co-stars, with the material. And then there's like fucking gonzo wackadoo Nick Cage, which I think was often written off as he's lost the plot. And I view it as him making some pretty daring choices in terms of I don't need to resemble the way an actual human being behaves if I'm in the movie Con Air. Like, who fucking gives a shit? Why not have fun? God, I love Con Air. Like, why not play with this? So about eight years ago, 2012, my friend and I, uh, Derek Simon, we were writing for a magazine that went under under almost immediately. That was a uh, due iPad to this magazine. piece that you wrote. Maybe, maybe. I mean, the piece was never really published, but uh, Ghost Rider: Spirit of Vengeance was coming out, which was, I, I really the last major studio movie that Nicolas Cage starred in as the lead. That pretty much ends that run. Wow. And his star was fading, and so they were like, he'll do an interview with anybody. And so they agreed to let the two of us interview him for this iPad-only magazine. Uh, (laughs) Not a website. It was you paid a subscription, and then you would get a file once a month. Oh, I love iPad magazines. It's my favorite medium to read content on. As we all know, eight years later, it worked, and we all read (laughs) iPad magazines all the time. But so we were writing for this, and we got to do an interview with him, and they were like, can you guys come up with more stuff? We can really build an entire issue around Nicolas Cage. So we did this thing where we gave each other two weeks to watch every Nicolas Cage movie. And it was like, we have two weeks at the end. We won't check in with each other. We won't know how the other one is doing. At the end of two weeks, we take the count and see who watched more films. So it was really like restructuring our lives around trying to watch these movies. Like, can you get in watch time on the subway? Can you download (laughs) the films onto your iPhones? Like any of this sort of stuff. And I watched the vast majority of his filmography. I think by the time this was done in 2012, he had made 45 movies and I had watched maybe 32. I mean, it was wow. something like that. You were very I watched, intimate with Nicolas Cage. Very intimate. And also felt like I had watched most of his life, like in a weird way, you know? Yeah. But when that ended in, in a way that I think makes sense, I was a little tapped out on him. And that coincided almost directly with Post-stock market crash, Nicolas Cage is having severe financial problems. He owns eight castles and has a large collection of dinosaur bones and all this shit and starts like owing millions upon millions to the IRS and just signing up to do any movie in order to pay off his back taxes. So this is when he starts doing like a lot of VOD action movies, like straight to Redbox, yeah. generic Like titles. Bruce Willis core, where it's like, oh, you made totally. like five movies in Russia that no one's ever heard of. Right. And I think like with Bruce Willis, it was him just being like, I'm lazy, I'd rather work less and get paid more and get to be the face on the poster. Whereas Nick Cage, it was a combination of, I don't want to give up being a leading man. I love being a leading man. And also... Uh, I need to make so much money per year. I need to do eight of these a year and they'll still pay me the old rates. So this like came out in that time where I was like, Nick, come on, like pull it back together. You know? Yeah. It like had felt like he was like the slipping started to happen around 2010. And by 2012, it was like, fuck, now he's like not making legitimate movies anymore. And he's only making these red box movies. And they're the ones where he's neither giving a real performance nor doing 
wacko gonzo performance art these are the ones where he just seems bored and kind of depressed yeah like, like in like in this in movie, movie where the, the majority of it is just him sitting down and right. kind of being calm for the most part you <laughs> say bored and depressed i say this man's got range <laughs> in a way in a way well so this is this movie always was fascinating to me because it was like man like how weird to think that he ended up doing a like a spiritual film like a christian film mm-hmm. it yeah. would have been completely impossible to think of him doing that four years earlier yeah oh, you know? totally yeah and what's so funny about the arc of this movie too is the sort of the meta text of like lahey and jenkins the uh, the original authors of like the 15 part book series that this is based on they were notoriously unhappy with the Kirk Cameron movies, of which there are three. They, Interesting. They made, yeah, they made yeah. three of them ultimately. But they thought they, they were too boring, right? Yeah, they were like, it's not, I mean, it's, I'm sure it was just like whatever syndrome of like, it's not dad rock enough, you know, I'm sure they want more sure. money and they look like little CBS movie of the week things because yeah. they probably had a similar budget, even though they made a lot of money uh, comparatively. But yeah. so they were, they were like, real jazz on getting it remade and doing it right finally uh, yeah and, and they sued the old production that made the Kirk Cameron mo- movie and then this one came along and this was like mm-hmm. redemption for them and they were like we're getting sequels they did a kickstarter for the second one well and you can see like the, the interesting kind of like I scratch your back you scratch mine strategizing of like Nick we will let you wear a pilot's uniform you get to be the hero of the movie hang out you with pretty the much, babe you pretty much just work in the cockpit like his schedule must have been <laughs> yeah. really Incredible. really plush like it, it feels like this entire movie was organized around letting him be the star while also minimizing the amount of work he had to do yeah and they the first time you notice that by the way is when you see the the family photo with all of them together yes. and it's like oh, oh Leah and Nick my were never god met. I, never met. I yelled when i saw that absolutely not it was four people photoshopped into a photo it wasn't like they just put him in the background it was a jigsaw puzzle incredible so i know it looked amazing. like an instagram yeah. filter where it's just like you're it's the, your head in a floating circle yeah I never I was thinking often of like how why aren't we ever going to get out of this airplane in this movie and that's really clicked for me is that the cliche like didn't want to move and I think you're right absolutely and I have Mm -hmm. another thing I want to throw into the mix on that but uh I do think like Nicolas Cage immediately gives production value even if his star has gotten dinged a little bit at this point you're like that's a real person who was in real Hollywood movies. Mm-hmm, Him mm-hmm. being in this movie, and I remember the marketing campaign of this movie. I was familiar with Left Behind. I remember the Kirk Cameron movie came coming out. I, I knew about the books. So I knew like, oh, this is weird. They're remaking an English language like Christian film from the last 15 years. I don't know if that's like, ever been done before, truly. I, I don't I think so. I don't think so. it has, yeah. And even just like English language remakes of other English language films are always fascinating to me, especially mm-hmm. when they happen like that close together, when it's not like a classic, you know? I was just imagining if Passion of the Christ is redone with Nick Cage as Jesus uh, <laughs> yeah. leading role. <laughs> that it was, right, a remake. And then I remember seeing the trailer and going like, they're really sort of trying to hide that this is a Christian film. Like they're I mean, really well just done. selling like... <laughs> Right, but it's like, here's Nick Cage in front of like a burning plane and you're making it look like an action film and something of a supernatural mystery. Like from the trailers and the posters and all of that, there's not that much of a difference in how they're like positioning this movie from how they're positioning Knowing, 
which is like, you know, a 2009 Nick Cage success that's about an alien conspiracy. Like, they feel very similar. Yeah. Oh, and this could have fully been aliens and it changes nothing about the movie. Absolutely. You know so I mean? this feels like the spoonful of sugar version of it, of like, we did the movie with the Christian star who everyone knows is a Christian idol, but doesn't really still have that much value outside of that world. And the book is like, you know, just like so dense. And the movie, having watched the original Kirk Cameron film now, is just like yelling at you, like at yeah. every moment. So They're intense. like, can we make a movie that can trick kids at the mall to buying their ticket and sitting down and at the end of two hours deciding that they love Jesus. Like, it feels like that's what they were trying to do. And with the, Kirk the Cameron only other person... One, right? Yeah, with the Kirk Cameron one. The only other person who I think has even attempted to do this, because most of the most successful Christian films are just weaponizing, uh, you know, a Christian audience that is underserved. The only other ones that I think really cross over are the Medea movies. And it's oh, like hallelujah. the smart, yeah. But it's right. I mean, Good Afternoon, Medea is a box office <laughs> draw, and I think I think that was a thing that Tyler Perry was like smart about. Is like I can like make a movie that we can sell mostly on the hijinks comedy of I'm wearing a dress, I'm loud, I have a handgun, I'm doing hijinks, whatever. But then you watch a Tyler Perry movie, and a lot of it is, like, sermonizing. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, he is the most conservative sort of, like, morality plays. Yes. I did not oh. know that. Oh, it, oh, yeah, it's nuts. What was the one? Deeply religious What, what was that yeah. one about the adultery plot where it was, like, temptation or seduction? It was something where, oh, like, oh, someone um, cheated. It's called, and, yes, oh, that God. film is insane. It's yeah. called, um, it. Uh, it's Confessions of a Marriage Counselor. But what's the first word? It's like it might the, be it's temptation. It's some vocab word that's, like, Oh, what is it? I think it is Temptation Confessions of a Marriage Counselor. Wait, but with that, Tara- oh, Temptation Confessions of a Marriage movie. Counselor. Yep. But that is very much a like uh, AIDS is God's punishment for uh, out of control sexuality movie. Like it's it's one to one, like a moralistic play about Holy the smokes. the dangers of promiscuity and how close it is to uh, uh, Satan. Yeah. Um, but in contrast to the Kirk Cameron movie where it is, it was pretty faithful to the original novel in terms of like the world building. We got Nikolai, we got the antichrist in there. Uh-huh. This one is truly just a sort of Christian Mad Lib to do a disaster movie about landing yeah. a plane. It's not particularly about the rapture at all. Uh, no, no, it's very odd. And like from the fact that they had gotten back the rights to all the other books, because I was digging into the Wikipedia and the folks who made the Kirk Cameron films only ever had the rights to the first three books, right? Mm. Oh, I'm not and when sure. They, yeah, probably. I, I believe that's what I read. And then when they did this lawsuit and got the rights back, they were like, finally, we could do all 15. Like we could do the full the full tapestry which there would be um, no comparison point for a 15 part movie except for marvel i guess james or bond james like what bond? are you talking yeah. about yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but literally like i mean freddie jason they don't get to those numbers no. you know you uh star <laughs> trek doesn't get to those numbers that like it's not like, all the funnier that they like chose chad michael murray and uh, the actress that played Chloe who i can't even remember i think her name was cassie or something like those were going to be the people carrying right. you through what they thought was going to be, yeah, like a 10 film. Which is run. such Hallmark Channel core. Like those those two yeah. actors do so many Hallmark movies now. Because yeah. I had assumed that 
Kirk Cameron played the pilot in the original film only because I went like, well, if Nick Cage is playing the character, that has to be the lead character. Mm -hmm. What I didn't understand is that they would retrofit the fourth lead to become the center of the movie because that was the part that they cast a major movie star in. Wild stuff. But it is one of those things that when you watch it now, weirdly, like, I think... The 2014 version does look grosser than the 2001 version because there's this weird digital sheen on it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the um, the original Left Behind has a certain like like Skinamax professionalism to it. Like it yeah, very much exactly. looks competency. Like, it looks like movie channel pay movie channel softcore pornography. It really does. Even down to the fact that it is like in like a square format. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was curious because I was watching it on Amazon and it came up perfectly square, but like in high def, clearly shot in 35 millimeter. And I was like, am I watching some bad full screen version of this? And then I looked it up and it was shot in full screen, released first on video, and then they cropped it later in theaters to make it look more cinematic. Mm-hmm. Oh, so they literally just like cut the image <laughs> down. Yeah, um, totally shot. And secrets. whereas th- this is like trying to have like more traditional movie like aesthetics and production values and whatever, but it does have just that really kind of like grimy, cheap look to it. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about when that airplane flew into the parking lot. I thought that was real. I was like, how'd they do that? This is an expensive film. <laughs> I think that's the best shot in the movie. It's also interesting that it was directed <laughs> very north by, by Northwest, a stuntman. It was directed by Indiana Jones. The stuntman. Yes. Yeah, yes. I was looking this guy yeah. up today beforehand. I was Vic like, oh my Armstrong. gosh, he did yes. like Harrison yeah. Ford's every right. movie. He did Christopher yeah. Reeve stunts. He's like still doing stunts. Right. And like directed one Dolph Lundgren movie, two episodes of the young Indiana Jones TV show, and then this. Yeah. Like and it's then, clear that he's just a guy insane. who's like, I, I want to direct movies. Like I'll take anything they let me do. And this could you have know? been John Wick. Yeah, sometimes stuntmen directing a movie does work out like a John Wick. And sometimes you get left behind 2014. But it is so funny when you realize (laughs) that fact because so much of the movie... Uh, there's just like no global perspective. I feel like I feel like truly those mo- those books are less about like the implications of rapture, more about like the perils of globalism and working with like Russia right. and like the I, evils and, of like, the one UN world government. Yeah. yeah, I was astounded watching the Kirk Cameron movie, and just because it's very fresh in my mind, it is it is about sort of evil globalism. Yeah, and so much through the specter of like, what are these Israeli people doing? Uh, but they consistently and exclusively refer to them as Jews. They constantly go like, the Jews are trying to steamroll over society as we know it. Like they're constantly calling them Jews, which is a very, very pointed thing to do when you're discussing about the citizens of one particular one state. Nation. That's yeah. so one nation. funny. I didn't, yeah, I mean, I didn't they, even catch they that. only call them the Jews. And it is like the Antichrist in the movie is this like Israeli businessman. Oh my gosh. Wait, don't the Jews move, I'm sorry to say that, the Jews, but I think in the movie and in the books, all the Jews in the world move back to Israel. Is that I true? B- believe I think so. Because so. I think that's like yeah. a, a prophecy in the Bible. And like one of the signs of the egg times is like everyone returns to Israel. So, But it still is so crazy. That they're like the Jews, you know, all of them. <laughs> Every, everything about it is weird. Do you feel like the Left Behind series was like kind of 
fundamental for um, birthing the QAnon movement <laughs> in a way? Was it like a oh, forerunner of like this sort no, of like conspiracy stuff? QAnon yeah. is like revelation, dispensationalism, all that stuff. Because if you yeah. are a Christian and you already are like relatives of my family who are like looking for signs all the time and a lot of it is yeah no thank you a lot of it is like surrounded by like the middle east and like what's going on over there and what do they do and the moons and all this kind of stuff like it's all even beyond that like you look at the actual wording of the QAnon messages like the things that were posted by q if you want to believe that q is one person and not a series of 4chan kids fucking with the internet or but, Ben Wisha sure sure um, but it Doesn't always you kind of from James Bond yeah that's yes, yes. Okay. And, yeah yeah no it was a good joke it was a good joke and I liked it thank you um, <laughs> Caroline C it, can you be more like Griffin and say I have good jokes and you like them I cannot I'm sorry okay that's um, fair the, the wording in those messages is always so biblical and the way they like recite it it's always like a storm is coming the reckoning will happen you know yes it always is this kind of language of like the winds are finally shifting you know it's it's like plague shit um yeah. and i i do think it's connected but yes i mean it's like left behind the actual sort of um the the leaving uh, happens very quickly and people adjust to it very quickly and then it just becomes about the political conspiracy <laughs> about right for how the, people for the listener at home caroline did just reenact the uh incredible the special effect in which chloe is hugging her little her little brother and he collapses in a flash and she's hugging a pile of clothes y'all it's so funny well it's so, not even a pile at first like it's still it's still like assembled like a child yes <laughs> like a, it's like the thing um, where they like they have to tuck the bottom of like the pants straw man, into the scarecrow. shoes yes. yeah it's like a scarecrow and then he like falls out <laughs> It's incredible. It's, it's so absolutely funny. incredible. Um, so funny. You love to see it. But that's it. the thing. I mean, I like, aside from the fact that it felt like the Kirk Cameron movie was yelling at me and telling me I was evil, I also enjoyed the Nicolas Cage movie more because it at least is having fun in a really trashy way with, let's actually get like the movie, movie value of the fallout of society. Totally. Like this movie takes place within just like the first three hours after uh you know it happens and yeah. seeing people run through the streets through the like, streets of new york louisiana baton rouge oh. brooklyn oh my gosh oh thank you i could never figure i was like is this san francisco where are we why yeah. am i supposed to know it's, Louis- it's, it's wild stuff because um, basically the movie is just split into a disaster movie on a plane and then especially when you know who the director is it makes sense uh Chloe just walking mm-hmm. through a stunt show on Earth, yes, and just like <laughs> yeah. this short bus fell off a bridge, yes. and then this ladies pl- and gentlemen, if you look to your right, here comes Buckaroo Jones <laughs> bursting through the window. <laughs> this girl walked through so much glass. <laughs> I was at least three windows. It feels like the Universal Studios tram tour. Yeah. It really, it really does. Where it's just like, and here's this train station where the flood happens. You know, yeah. like all of that shit. I mean, there's the one moment when 
she's trying to break into the hospital. And, like, I'm sorry. I understand this is, like, force majeure. Like, this is beyond comprehension. I don't know how I would react if something like this happened. I don't think I would react like her, where despite hugging a child in her arms and then watching him disappear into a pile of clothes, her series of thoughts are, well, let me check the hospitals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Get on my hands. I know. I will class, say, though. Get to the chaotic hospital. Oh, I know. She like, like that was like a little diehard moment, right? When she broke that window and just went fat, 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 all over the glass. I, I was hands reminded, were bleeding, I assume. As as an actor who has mostly worked in bad projects, I had like a, like a tinge of PTSD watching that scene because I could just imagine the conversation where they were like, "So here's the scene. You take this like thing and then you throw it through the glass at the bottom of the window, and then you have to crawl through, but it's really dangerous. And so it's like die hard. You're trying not to cut your hands, and then she's looking at it and probably going, "I could just step over this. Like the way this is set up it's right so clear now. She could have stood up and yeah. I could I could stand up. I could jump." Like, I could just reach my arm over the glass and propel myself she sold forward. It. She right, sold and it then good. I just, I, I have been in that position so many times where a bad director on a bad movie with a bad script is telling me, just, just do the thing. Mm-hmm. Just trust me. Well, it'll make sense on camera. I know. And then you watch it and you're like, I look like a moron. Oh, <laughs> I know. It's so hard um, to trust people. What were you going to say, Kelly? Speaking of, I was going to say, I love that they also imagined a world where people ask, investigative reporters for autographs at the airport <laughs> everything everything I about this love that from tv buck <laughs> i mean he would have to be on a ronan pharaoh level for that yes. to be the case i, I can't guess, even right? imagine ronan gets mobbed like that like the only thing i could think of is like maybe anderson cooper but but this I, guy's just, like so much more rock and roll than these guys such you know a what hunk. i'm saying yeah that's Chad so Michael true Mudface. they don't Look, have the th- edge <laughs> there's only one real world video journalist that i think you can compare this guy to Alex and of Jones? course <laughs> Eddie Brock from the Eddie Brock report in the movie Venom oh hell yeah <laughs> that another is Tom movie car- yes 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 another movie that presents a video journalist who is beloved mm-hmm. <laughs> like a rock star but super fucking edgy and doesn't so play by the rules funny. and is constantly just carrying around a camera going like I find my stories and I just shoot them when I can you know <laughs> the I woman know. crying into his camera of like I can't find my baby and he's on the airplane with her and he's just holding his huge <laughs> digital camera fair, in her face that's absolutely what I would do I would ask <laughs> I gotta get my second a day video like I gotta done. get my second a day yeah. <laughs> There's one blip of a lady just But also like I mean he's not live streaming this stuff. He's just no. filming all this footage to hand in to headquarters when he lands. I would he's th- thinking, you know, he's thinking two steps ahead. The Motley crew in first class really stressed Ugh. me out. All these that types bummed me out so bad. There is a small person who's one of the who's the most horrible person in the movie is literally the butt uh, of jokes. From, from Pirates of the Caribbean. He's he's the Oh yeah, a, a, a crew member of the Black Pearl. Oh, yeah. do you know the actor's name? I'm not. I'm not familiar with him. I don't but, know uh, his but name, but I, I recognize totally him. Totally recognize yeah. him before. But the movie, the last beat of his character is that he's literally punted off the plane. It felt very <laughs> oh, yeah. insensitive. Yeah, he gets uh, kicked down the to side. Say the least. There's a Muslim. there's that incredible. 
there, there's a scene. Well, yeah, there. Well, so this is what I was going to bring up. There's a Muslim guy on the plane who is very respectful uh, and kind and thoughtful to everyone around him. And there's the scene Which, where Griffin. Tra- let me tell you, that was a shock to me. <laughs> I I was so ready. Most Christian for, movies they don't dodge that bullet so well. For the way that Kirk Cameron presented the Jews and the original Left Behind, and I'm blaming him solely for that. Oh, the second fair. I saw a Muslim guy on the plane, I got terrified i got full body shivers yeah so the fact that he is presented in a positive light was like i felt like a big win but you have that <laughs> moment where chad michael murray is starting to like go around the plane and interview everyone and he needles our friend from pirates of the caribbean and goes like what about that guy was anything uh, weird about that guy and he responds like no weirder than anyone else on this plane and you're like oh so i guess it's like Chad Michael Murray is trying to play on Islamophobia, but this guy isn't having any of that. And then yeah, the, but then he's a, the Islamophobic next scene later. Yeah, <laughs> the very next scene, he's like sneaking into his bag to try to find a bomb. And then they do that cut. It's like how 9/11 made Dennis Miller a conservative. It's like that moment made Absolutely. him a racist. <laughs> Absolutely. The question. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, he never like, considered. Right. But he snarks back so quickly, like, not a, no weirder than anyone else on this plane. Wait a second. <laughs> and there's that amazing cut when uh, he's reaching into his bag to try to find something. And the Muslim guy notices and tries to pull his bag back. Oh, my God. Oh and then they God. hard cut the Rip moment edit. they're pulling the object out of the bag to make you think it's a dangerous weapon. And then it cuts to like looting in the street, guns being fired. No, it cuts fired. to a shotgun right. shot at Chloe. Yeah, right back <laughs> on the streets of New York yes. City, what is recognizably Super. upstate New York. Yeah, small yeah. town New York, <laughs> oh, Westchester. Sure. Uh, yeah, they only cut back like so... four minutes later to show that it was an electric toothbrush in the Muslim <laughs> yeah. guy's bag. So there's that guy. There's Jordan Sparks as a very troubled mother who, of course, loses Ugh. her kid. Also, Griffin, what did you think of like generally the uh, Left Behind as the movie's conception of like all children are innocent and do go to heaven if they're beneath a certain so, age? So glad you brought this up because once again Kirk Cameron Left Behind does not deal with the larger repercussions it does not really dig into the details of how this is all played out Mm -hmm. the rapture this movie makes it very clear that every single child is inherently good and got sent up to heaven right away I love that. Yeah, we that. don't even see any teens, so I wonder if it goes up to 18, you know, Absolutely. like the legal I mean, age. We know teens are so pure. It's like and the age so of consent, kind. Caroline. They don't know any yeah. better. Yeah. To when you can consent to go to hell. <laughs> Speaking of consent, mm. uh, women sure do just get kissed a lot and, and shaken and told to calm down all mm. the time. Yes. I mean, it is like, it's a parade of uh, literally that airplane scene where like that woman's hysterical and people keep slapping her and shaking her and telling her <laughs> Everything's down. all right. Every oh, single woman in that movie. There's, yeah, the lady with probably Alzheimer's that kind of lost her mind and lost her husband, which means that yeah. she, that, which the implications, like, no. the, the implications of that are stunning, that her husband is raptured to heaven and the woman with a degenerative illness is left yeah. This. She made her choice. <laughs> she How did. do you think she got it? You know? Oh, good but grief. The, but the Kirk Cameron movie is mostly, you know, the pilot, his daughter, the journalist, and the the reverend Nikolai. who's in one scene of this. Well, and yeah. then Nikolai is the villain, of course, the Antichrist himself. Mm-hmm. Um, Kofi Or no, no. He's he's the head of the UN, Nikolai. Yeah. Or is Nikolai yes. the well, Antichrist? Well, he takes over. Right. 
Um, but but it's those four characters coming together and like finally recognizing the power of Jesus and becoming good Christians. I love Did you that's know in the, the book that they're the called movie. the Tribulation Force? No, God, those that's four? so fucking good. Because they only hint at that at the at the moment in this movie when they're like, it's a like when she's in the church when Chloe's in the church and and the pastor's like, it's about to get kind of bad out there like it's gonna get <laughs> mm-hmm. intense or whatever yeah like god was saving them from that mm-hmm. most of this movie is structurally like apollo 13 mm-hmm. you know it's like mostly the disaster going up in the skies and then a yeah. little bit of like people on earth trying to figure out what's going on um totally it's it's it, so like watching them back to back i was the second we got on the plane and they started spending time setting up the other passengers and giving them each a comedic game and also the fact that they were played <laughs> by recognizable casting. actors yes right uh-huh. i was like oh this is clearly going to be a totally different story like mm-hmm. this is just gonna just zoom out on the plane flight which in yeah. the cameron movie is like five minutes of screen yeah time. it's like one scene right like you right. don't spend a lot of time in the airplane okay yeah. Right, which I almost thought maybe this is like it's going to be like flight. Like they're going to have like a big expensive, you know, for this movie action yeah. crash sequence and then the rest of the movie will play out like the previous left behind. But this is it's a plane movie. Yeah. By and, and large. And it concludes Half with of the plane. a landing that is uh comparable to a PS2 cutscene. PS3 Absolutely. maybe. Uh, Absolutely. So that's an interesting, yeah, a little CGI aspect of an it. An interesting choice. It was an interesting choice. And I think it was definitely a choice and not a uh, limitation of budget. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, th- again, the the moment when uh, Chloe is running by and a water tower explodes, it does look like Waterworld, the stunt yes. show. Yes. <laughs> Everything Universal. about it. Yes. It oh, feels very gracious. stunt show. And it is like there's a, a really interesting, especially when you get like, big wide shots like crowd shots where they do have a lot of extras in this movie you know mm-hmm. you'll see like there's a big difference between looting a 32 pro- inch television at the mall oh that reminds right. me did you guys catch the guy who's holding like seven pairs of like women's jeans in various yes, sizes yes, yes, yes. <laughs> oh god yes, yes. yes. that guy sounds it was awesome. like multiple he was in the background of several and I was like that was his deal you know like come on <laughs> well there's like there's the like principal bucks. actors who are trying their hard and then you have like extras and stunt people who are like sort of you know playing it with a little bit of the emotional intensity of the rapture Mm -hmm. and then (laughs) in in any of those larger shots you have a lot of people and i feel for them who are just running from point a to point b (laughs) you know where you very much see they're just out of breath they, they have no urgency. <laughs> there is no terror in their eyes. They're just like, they've been told by the second AD on action, you start here and you run here and the two of you hold hands. And they're just like, it's a day at the DMV. They're just like getting it done. I love that. I love that still in 2014, the hottest ticket in the world is you too. It is the hardest to get it and only it is a, special like custodians at chair? the airport. <laughs> can have access to maybe it's part of the youtube fan club expensive maybe maybe bono's his dad i don't know it's a very classic kind of like movie thing where they're like we want the audience to know 
that they're tickets to U2. But we want to be subtle about it. You know, show, don't tell. So let's print the tickets up with a massive U2 logo on them. <laughs> Not how any concert ticket has ever looked. Like Ticketmaster just uses the same fucking dot matrix printer for everything. And this just has their giant stamped U2 logo, all art designed on it. We should And Green Mountain Coffee and Starbucks. Absolutely. <laughs> Before we, we wrap up this discussion, I think we should talk about the mother-daughter relationship in this movie mm. and w- what has occurred with uh, Leah Thompson in the latter stages of her career. Because she did this movie. She oh, did yeah. what I assume is an atrocious version of Little Women for Pure Flix yeah. like two A years ago. A modern day. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. So, and her, her, her daughter, I guess, is carrying her torch that she no yeah. longer can in any decent projects. But she plays uh, Ray's wife who drives him to adultery because of her like right. live, love, pray pillows that are strewn out about the uh, living room and in the house. And her yeah. flavor of Christianity is crucifixes everywhere and knowing that the end times are indeed coming. That is just going to leave me for a man. I, I guess it might as well be Jesus. I mean, that line's pretty good. I can't find yeah. any fault yeah. with that no. line. Uh, and then uh, she does get raptured away in the shower. Chloe finds her necklace in the running water of the shower floor. What nice. a bad decision. If you have set up cool. the visual language of this movie that when we see the pile of clothes, that's how we find out that a beloved character has died. Why place her in the shower? Why? So that the last thing we think about her is that chick was naked. <laughs> no, but also it's like they're writing themselves into a corner because once they make it clear that she was in the shower when the rapture happened, the only thing they can do is also imply, not imply, tell us that she constantly showered while wearing six different items of jewelry. Hey. Like that's the only way to make it carry over visually. Whoa, 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 whoa. Is it weird to wear jewelry in the shower? No, but no. like a standard two or three pieces, not six. Yeah, <laughs> standard yeah, two a lot or three. of necklaces. Yeah. <laughs> now, a couple okay. rings. When um, Chloe did uh, scale the Bobo Golden State Bridge, Golden Gate Bridge, was that a like a maybe she's thinking of ending it all moment, or was she just trying to get service? I could not tell. Oh yeah, because she kind of does like a last call. I read it as suicidal. Yeah, I, I wonder too. if they kept it vague because the the writers of the book were like, you, you can't, making it seem like she came that close to committing suicide is a little sinful. Oh, yeah. I wonder if they like wanted to skirt around it. But it, from the way the actress was playing it, it certainly felt like she was giving, I am considering ending it all energy. Mm-hmm. Or it just wasn't trying just, to like get a view of what was going on. I really well, got closer yeah, I to the plane. Know. Wave to him, give him a high five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is now the time. Yeah, she I... was up there for a long time too. And the soundtrack for it was the chillest suicidal ideation song <laughs> I've ever heard in my life. It was like a like a smooth little soul <laughs> song. It was like no <laughs> conflict <laughs> here whatsoever. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it was like jazzy. It was like, oh, all right, maybe it's fine. That girl, you could say she had a bad day. Oh man. Well, <laughs> I will say too, the Kirk Cameron movie, like similarly has a lot of inappropriate, like uh, uh, off mood uh, soundtrack drops. But anytime that happened where there'd be like a pop song where I was like, this doesn't fit the tone, then the lyrics would hit. And I was like, 
oh, they were like handcuffed to using Christian rock. Like they wanted to have the Christian rock soundtrack, but none of these songs sound appropriate for the movie they've chosen. That's right. At least this has like a fake version of an actual action movie soundtrack, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. The score is like what a movie score would be although it did sound like at some parts like a like a like a fox mid-aughts procedural like lawyer procedural score like it was like some ally yeah. mcbeal percussion in the airport and right. stuff but and it does conclude on a version of i wish we'd all been ready i don't know if it's the same version but jordan sparks did do a version of i wish we'd all been oh, ready. oh i'd have to imagine jordan sparks giving us some extra doesn't speak for the first hour and 30 minutes of this movie really beyond like (laughs) honey don't bother the man and then has a scene where she takes out a handgun and goes ballistic at all the other passengers of the plane because she thinks she's living through some sort of flight plan scenario or like the game where all of this was done to drive her crazy from her vindictive football player husband Mm -hmm. Oh, there's also oh, a yeah, that's right. There's yeah, also a Texas like businessman and a heroin addict on the plane that may yeah. not oh, yeah. want discussion here. The former Christian heiress. Oh my god! Yeah. That's Remember when she walked in and all the guys were like, "Wow!" Whoa. Yeah, and it was like I think she's just blonde. Like I don't know what they <laughs> yeah. should she's huge blonde. sunglasses. With sunglasses. Face. Yeah, the blondes can get it mm-hmm. any time right. in this movie. <laughs> And then when she doesn't take the sunglasses off an hour into the flight, you're like, okay, something's wrong with this woman. <laughs> Are they going to reveal that her deep, dark secret is that she's blind? And instead it's that she's <laughs> that like... She's blind. That's her sin. <laughs> but it felt like it because I was like, why is she, she keeping these super dark sunglasses on all the time? What's the secret here? And it's it's that she's like a old-timey jazz mus- musician with her heroin habit. <laughs> My Just gosh. needing to wear the sunglasses in indoors powder. all the time. Yes, yeah. in the powder. Yeah. And and her Didn't parents were Kevin. very religious, so she's the one who figured it out. <laughs> yeah. I, that's None another great scene. Also would like, uh, yeah. I went to another camp. Great all scene. we talked about was rapture. I, I got the code to crack. Yeah. <laughs> when so, Nicolas um, Cage figures it out, and he's like, wait a second. And he looks at his co-pilot's watch, and it has like the biblical yeah. verse on it. And then he's like, no, no. And he screams to his like adulterous uh, 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 flight attendant, like the, the, the other flight attendant, get her bag, anything she has, and goes through every item in her bag until he finds anything that proves that she was Christian, which he has to <laughs> dig all the way through her like oh, yeah. page a day calendar to find where she has written down Bible, Bible study. study. Yeah, if it was made now, it would be like a phone case that had a crucifix on it. And it's like, <laughs> yep, I'm definitely a Christian, like in long ways. <laughs> But he's giving it like he's giving it like two percent of the energy he gives to the scenes where he's trying to crack the code a national treasure. Like he's just giving them the bare minimum version of that. But it is it is interesting to me. Like it is so much lighter theologically, and it is sort of like a a sheep and wolves clothing of a movie. But then actually not really because there is no like thesis statement about it. Because Chloe converts to Christ, but then everyone else is like. Eh, whatever. <laughs> like, let's just get off this plane. So there's not like a drive towards that, towards conversion. 
Um, no, I mean, I th- I think they were playing a really long game. I think they thought, like, we can make these movies that just feel like, oh, they have some spirituality in them in a way a lot of Hollywood films do. And then 15 films later, we'll have them on the hook. Yeah, yeah we're going to do it. Yeah, I think this was supposed to be the hook. It was like, right. Jad Michael Murray and Nick Cage and a lot of explosions and, like, the boys are going to love it. Gracious. And then second movie, you'll hear that. Because it wasn't even like they ever... I feel like, yeah, in the Kirk Cameron movie, they spent so much time like explaining the verses in the Bible yes. that explain what's going right. on and like why it's happening this way and like yeah. really laying down like what Christianity revelation is. This and is this how the is, Antichrist like, will present himself. Unconcerned. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. With it entirely. I was really surprised by that, especially considering that like LaHaye was buddies with Jerry Falwell, if I'm remembering correctly. Oh, and they were like big time into. Like controlling America's thought life, yeah, you know, and like yeah. politics and stuff. So the fact that he would make like such a Christianity light version of this movie and be like stoked about it, um, I guess maybe it just like betrays more of like, yeah, he just wanted like kind of to be the bad boy of Christian media or something. And yeah, like, and also shit. like we need to reach a larger audience. Like we need to not just preach to the converted, but like yeah, convert so. some some new ones. But I don't. I mean. I just think if if your designs are that cynical, it's never going to work. Like it's that thing of like we can trick people into converting or like finding Christ and accepting him as their Lord and Savior by making them watch a cool action movie. It's like, but the people who want to watch a cool action movie are always going to prefer the cool action movie that also isn't trying to convert them, yes. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It'll always be that like, way. Like there, the approach doesn't really make sense, even though in a way that makes more sense than the types of movies you guys were talking about, where it's like very much about the evils of everyone else in society and how they've like given up on God and how they need to be shown the light. But the only people watching those movies are people who already agree with everything happening. Have you guys talked about Butch Hartman at all on this podcast? Have you dug into this? This is like a phenomenon I'm really, really fascinated by when I go down weird months long internet rabbit holes. He was one early last year, maybe. Butch Hartman is a dude who's worked in animation forever, worked on like most of the cartoon shows of the 90s, but created uh, Fairly Odd Parents. Yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I do know about him. Uh A couple other things like that. So he is very, very religious, uh, but has largely kept it out of his work, has mm-hmm. not put it into his work, even in really a subtextual way up until now. Yeah, and then probably about, a P-doctor type. Right, right, exactly. Where it's like, I myself am very informed by my spirituality, but I'm not trying to make work to like spread the word of Christ. About a year or two ago, he remakes himself as like a social media star. And it was kind of an odd thing because now it's become a little less weird. Like, now you have, like, Will Smith as the king of tank talk or whatever. But, like, maybe it was even three years ago. It felt odd that it's, like, here's this guy who's, like, in his 50s now, who's now doing, like, YouTube videos every day that all have these very, like, clickbaity names. Whoa. And they're, like, why I left Nickelodeon. Uh, oh, I watched like, that one. It caught my attention. I've watched almost all of them. And then he does a lot of like me trying to draw other characters from memory or drawing other characters in the style of this thing or whatever it is. Are they um, good? 
Well, no, but they're like, they're kind of, they're compellingly bad. There's something very odd. He is kind of charismatic, and he's one of those animators who was like, well, I also acted on the side. Like, I kind of want to be a comedian. And so he has that thing of like a guy who's been looking for the outlet to be the dude on camera for so yeah. long, even yeah. though he's had so much success, made so much money, yada, yada, yada. Um, but about a year into me watching his videos, they just kept on showing up in my feed, and then I got into them. And then, of course, the algorithm only recommended them to me he starts talking about his big new project which is a streaming service that he's going to launch called oaxis and it's clear that like his push to get into social media was just to build a new active following for oaxis whatever this big thing was that he was going to launch and he does a kickstarter and they're like we're raising two hundred thousand dollars for oaxis which is a number that makes no sense because what he's saying is we are going to establish our own platform we're going to have to build out the technology the user interface you know the compatibility with different devices but then also we are going to make a ton of our own content for this platform we need two hundred thousand dollars <laughs> to get started yeah and his thing was like, we'll also allow people to upload their own stuff. So it'll kind of be like YouTube where people can post their own videos, but then we're also going to make our own shows and they're going to be animation, but they're going to be live action. It's going to be action shows. It's going to be talk shows. It's going to be everything and movies and TV and short form and long form, everything, everything, everything. And like something about it just like doesn't really make sense. And his hook he kept on talking about was it's family friendly. It is so hard these days, there's so much gratuitous stuff on TV. You turn on primetime network television, all these references and these gross things and the sex and the language. I just, I think families should be able to watch TV together. I don't and want so it. I assure you <laughs> that everything that happens on OAxis, whether it's something we made or something that was user uploaded, has gone through strict guidelines to mean that anyone of all ages can watch it together. I believe it never launched, but after he did the Kickstarter campaign and had built up a lot of like sort of support on social yeah, media because yeah, he had yeah. all these kids who were like, I'm 15 now and I grew up with your shows and I love that he's like interacting with us online or whatever. This video leaked out of him speaking at some religious conference about how Oaxis was like a indoctrination tactic. That his thing was like all this Christian media, it leads with the Christian stuff foot forward. And so you're never going to get anyone watching it who isn't already on board. We need to reach out to the people who have not accepted Christ into their life, who don't think they want to see it. So like, and he runs down his plan where he's like, year one, it's all this. Year two, we start to put a really small amount of messaging into a certain number of shows. Oh year three, I mean, it was like truly like, and he's giving this speech in a room full of like i think a lot of investors like you know wealthy like mega church owners and stuff uh and they're just applauding him wildly and it leaked out and the internet just went wild on him Amazing. and he had to backtrack and go like that's not really what it is i think it's been misinterpreted this and that but it became very clear that a he was only using the kickstarter as a promotional opportunity that he didn't need that money because of course what is two hundred thousand dollars going to do and that secondly the way he was presenting the channel to everyone was a deliberate sort of misdirect. Uh, obfuscation misdirect oh my god and and his plan was lure them in with the uh, completely you know uh, a religious content and uh, and then slowly slowly convert them 
Um, Where well, we but did yes. the opposite with this podcast. So we called <laughs> yeah. it Good Christian Fun. And it turns out we make Trying people leave people. their churches. <laughs> well, there are good ones out there. But this movie, just watching this, I kept on thinking about that because it's like the runtime of this thing kind of feels like the journey it goes on from beginning to end and how lightly it gets to like, hmm, the Bible you say, maybe I'll take a look, feels like the kind of slow sell that he was pitching. Even to the extent that like they really try to make Leia Thompson seem like the weird character. Yeah, she's so weird. Yeah, you shouldn't like her. Right. It's not one of those movies where it's just like, well, clearly this character is going to be proven correct at the end. (laughs) No. Uh, well, we should we we should wrap it up and uh, give our rating. The way this works, Griffin, is we give it a holy toast, or holy roast, or space between. Holy toast. That means we send it to heaven, all the way to heaven. We take that plane up to heaven and toast it with the angels forever. Holy roast. That means we fly that plane all the way down to hell. To hell. Wow. How apropos. Where no one under eighteen can go. Oh, mm. if we're not sure, we can send it and fly it straight into purgatory between the clouds. Yeah. The space between. I mean, here's what's what's tough. I feel like I have to view this on a relative scale, right? And watching the two left behinds back to back, there is no question that I liked this one, the one we're really discussing here, the 2014 Nick Cage version, much more. And it's because this movie was, it at least had designs on entertaining me, Right. It was trying to be uh, 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 an accessible uh, popcorn thriller. It didn't feel like the subtext of this one was, we will not be replaced. Right. <laughs> right. So in that sense, it's like, I, I think, you know, I, I have to rate it against the original Left Behind, which felt like an attack, and I would say, you know, is a holy roast. Yeah. Uh, but but I, I think this is, is going somewhere... In between. I think this is like a transition point for someone like Butch Hartman to study until they figure out how to make one of these that actually works oh, yeah. and tricks people into loving Jesus. All right. With Space Between from Griffin, Caroline, what say you? I'm trying to imagine like being tricked into loving Jesus at all. Like it just mm. What? Oh no. Oh, crap. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> just it's just, it's so much you have to believe all at once. Like, you have to yeah. really get there or really need it. Uh, um, wow. Anywho, uh, but they'll keep trying. I will give this a holy roast. I think mostly because I really, like you said, wish we could have seen more from Nick Cage in this film. I feel like he had a lot more to give. And unfortunately, he was way too stoic and good at being a pilot. Yeah, what a bad movie for him to be... The straight man in. I know. Where he's like, okay, everyone keep calm. He should have been calm. the the character that the little person was playing, or uh, I don't know, maybe the guy with the shotgun. I teased this earlier, but this was I was watching this and going like, aside from money, why would he do this? This is so strange. Like this is such a strange choice for him. Mm-hmm. Famous heathen Nicholas Cage, you know, voodoo actor extraordinaire Nicholas Cage. <laughs> And then I remembered um, when we got to interview him for this magazine and this thing that was never published, we found a quote from when The Sorcerer's Apprentice was coming out. And they said, what attracted you to this role? And he said, well, I got the script and I realized, oh, man, I've never played a wizard before. (laughs) Which is such a unique Nicolas Cage 
thought to go like, that is strange that I haven't played a wizard up until now. Like most <laughs> actors don't think when when will I finally get to play a wizard as if it is playing a parent. Yeah, you know? or yeah. or that it's like collecting outfits in The Sims or something. Like, well, now I'm a policeman. So, 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 so we said, he went, yeah, yeah, no, I remember saying that. I remember saying that. We're on like a phone or interview with him at yeah. like eight o'clock in the morning, right? And we said, so our question for you is, are there any other occupations that would make you sign on to a film irregardless if you got to play that role? And we expected him to sort of buffer and go like, well, you know, it's always about the script, you know, the material, who you're working with. He almost without a pause says a submarine captain, astronaut, chef. <laughs> so he he's just collecting. He coopered. I, I <laughs> think coopering. he truly... <laughs> I think they truly told him you could play a pilot and he was on board. Wow. That's cool. It must be nice to be a white male actor and just be like, which one? Yeah, which is which, which hat one? Which do I get to wear? <laughs> but I think it was that. I think he liked play, wearing the uniform. I think he liked sitting in the cockpit and saying My very, husband very. said he found some trivia that like he did this as a favor to a friend who's a Christian. A friend named Jesus Christ, Caroline. Yeah. <laughs> no better friend than he. Yeah, he's a friend of mine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm going to give it a roast as well. Man, what a what a like slow movie for being oh about gosh. a very exciting event. Again, I'll, I, I bring it up every time we talk about Rapture stuff. Just watch The Leftovers. What a great interrogation of faith in the, in the midst of like a global uh, event. Um, well, maybe don't watch it now. <laughs> maybe watch it later. Yeah. Well, you can go to at Christian Fun Pod and vote for yourself. Give it a roast or toast. So get out there and... Pokemon go to the polls. Something you can't Ballers. do where Griffin lives, apparently. Ah, <laughs> uh, you actually hate to see it. All right, now we're dimming the lights. We're lighting the candles. We're playing synth music. Soft and sweet. It's time for the altar call where we go up to the altar of GCF. And Griffin, we're not here to promote ourselves or our projects. We're here to lift them up to the Lord. Okay. Uh, sure and we start with Caroline. Uh, you can follow me in rapture at Caroline's Farts, Twitter and Instagram, TikTok even. And um, I'm going to lift up a couple podcasts that I really enjoy. Uh, one is called Chelsea Peretti, which came back because she's doing this album. And it is really uh, satisfying for some reason to hear someone very funny and very mean to people and not try to be better about it at all <laughs> and uh, the other one is Day of Homekins with Paul F. Tompkins and his wife Janie Haddad Tompkins and it is so sweet and charming and like just them talking about their day and old stories from their life and I love it it's kept me company it's very pleasant now Caroline you have a little microphone now. Is it tempting for you and Nate to start your own stay-at-home podcast during the quarantine? <laughs> Truly, the thought like has not crossed my mind once <laughs> at all. I am sweaty enough on a weekly basis. I don't right, need more of that. All right, all right. Well, then we turn it to Griffin. Uh, I'm Griff Lightning, like Grease Lightning, but with the first half of my name on oh, yeah. all the social media platforms. I'm doing more Instagram live stuff 
Um, I've so been yeah, I've been checking out your that. show with Romilly. That, that's, that's yeah, so I've been funny. doing a show with my sister. We we switch around the day, so it's uh, often on Mondays, but often other times. So stay tuned to that. But my sister, who is a very sophisticated young lady who likes high culture and Meryl Streep, and I, who love Vin Diesel and am a trash boy, uh, we uh, each week watch a Meryl movie and a Vin Diesel movie and compare them. Um, doing that. And Blank Check with Griffin and David, my podcast where we go over directors' filmographies. Listen to Blank um, Check, one of my favorite podcasts ever. And I don't know when this is dropping, but I think imminently our Happy Feet episodes are coming out. And the Happy Feet movies are Happy very feet. much about faith in an interesting way. Oh, I think interesting. I think ha- Happy Feet 1 in particular is really about institutionalized religion. Interesting. Wait, is George Miller like and an ex-Catholic sex. boy? I, that's the vibe I got, and I actually should have done more digging. Um, and if I can uh, boast, boost something else to the high heavens, uh, I've been watching The Critic, the old uh, 90s uh, primetime animated sitcom starring John Lovitz yeah, it as a uh, Jewish film critic. It stinks. It's a really good show. Uh, it's on Crackle.com, which I didn't know still existed because it was yeah. bought out by Chicken Soup uh, for the Soul, but they kept on a lot of other stuff. What? <laughs> Is that true? Yep. yep. <laughs> A book series bought out a website, a video streamer? (laughs) Crackle was Sony's streaming service for all of their properties, and they sold it to Chicken Soup for the Soul. And so I thought, oh, it's all been replaced by, like, uplifting, you know, human kindness content. And instead, a lot of the old Sony shit is still on there. Like Ellen, yes. It was sort of the Ellen of streaming services. (laughs) Just about being good to your fellow man and woman. Yeah, uh, but then when you stopped Um, streaming, it, like, called you names and was horrible to you. Yeah, it tries to run you over with its car. But um, The Critic is on there. That's a real story I heard. Uh, The Critic is on there. The the Patrick Warburton Tick is on there. Hey. Uh, They got... They got a lot of good content. I um, so I, I don't know. Watch Crackle. And and the original, not the original, the tick that I uh, was on is on Amazon, still in perpetuity. And I always tell people to watch it because I'm very proud of it, even though it's no longer going. Thanks, Griffin. You can lift me up at Kevin T. Porter. Uh, and then I'll lift up an actress. A Ooh. little actress who low-key may be having the, the best career on TV in the last 10 years. Merritt Weaver. Gotta love Merritt Weaver from Run, from Unbelievable, and of course, who could forget her on Nurse Jackie? Merritt Weaver, check her out on all her great projects, including when she played a a, uh, disheveled intern on Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Right. (laughs) Yeah, for like four episodes or something. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, incredible stuff. Thank you, Merritt. And then you can lift us up at Christian Fun Pod everywhere. Go to patreon.com slash goodchristianfun for more good Christian fun every week. We do an episode every Friday, a bonus episode. And if you go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review, we donate a dollar to charity for each review you leave. And this one's charity is your local food bank because they need it. Griffin, thanks so much for joining us on the show, buddy. Such a pleasure. What uh, a fun time. I'm supposed to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you for giving me an excuse to interrogate my own history with religion. Get in uh, there, Which buddy. is clearly ever-evolving. <laughs> do the work. Get in there. Do the work. We hope it keeps you work. up and, and makes, gives you many, many sleepless nights to come. Fight and look, parents. if that doesn't do it, I, I assure you, other things will keep me up at night. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. And there's nothing left to say except for in all of Pod's people said, a. 
Amen. And then we'll go out with uh, the Jordan Sparks version of uh, I Wish We'd All Been Ready, which I'm going to play right now. Can y'all hear that? Oh, this time I can for some reason. I had a crush on Jordan Sparks when she was on American Idol. I'll own up to it. I got to. One of Kevin's women, Caroline. One of Kevin's young women. Yeah. 40. All right. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Children died. The days grew cold. A piece of bread could buy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.